our beloved listener to a fascinating event that happened 80 years ago, a story of uh, wartime heroism and post-war humility and the pathway it created for a young man to become president. And to tell us, we turn or return to Brett Mason. Brett is the chair of the Council of my favourite institution in Canberra, the National Library of Australia, a former Queensland senator and ambassador to The Hague. And this time last year, he was on the Little Wireless program talking about, and I take a deep breath, The Wizards of Oz, how Oliphant and Florey helped win the war and shape the modern world. And it's good to have him back to tell us about his new book, Saving Lieutenant Kennedy, the heroic story of the Australian who helped rescue JFK. Let's jump straight into the event that that, uh, did so much to build the, uh, the Kennedy aura. It's August 1943, the war in the Pacific is raging and it's a dark night in the Solomons. The commander of of a PT boat was, yes, the future US President John F. Kennedy. What happened? Well, he was patrolling, uh, Philip, uh, in the uh, waters just off uh, Kolombangara Island uh, in the Solomon Islands. And he was there with... 14 other, uh, they call patrol torpedo boats, and their aim was to stop Japanese destroyers and military transport craft resupplying Japanese bases. And Kennedy and, as I say, another uh, 14 others were sent out to stop what the Americans had dubbed the Tokyo Express from resupplying the Japanese soldiers. And what happened was that at about 2.30 in the morning, Kennedy... Uh, and his crew on PT-109. It was a foggy night, and out of the the mist came a Japanese destroyer and smashed into Kennedy's very small PT-109 bite and and spit it in two. And as he did it, the petrol tanks on on, on Kennedy's craft exploded, all three of them, Uh, so much so that uh, it actually scarred the paint on the Japanese destroyer and the PT boats that could see Kennedy's craft thought, gee, no one could have survived that. They're all dead. But they weren't. And what happened next was that they spent, gee, 15 hours in the water. After about 12, they decided, Kennedy decided, two of his crew killed instantly, that he had to get to an island he decided to go to a very small island called Plum Pudding Island, but today called Kennedy Island, and they swum there. It took them about four hours, and they arrived about six o'clock on the 2nd of August, 1943, and Kennedy, with his teeth, grabbed uh, one of his injured crewmen and towed him, towed him by his life jacket all the way to the island. Fortunately, Philip, for Kennedy, it didn't chip the famous smile, but it was one hell of a swim. And and Kennedy was extraordinarily brave. Even the sceptics and even the cynics all agreed that after the Japanese destroyer hit him, Kennedy showed extraordinary bravery in bringing the 11 surviving crew on shore. And at least then they could look for coconuts and for water. It was miraculous, the fact that they survived to get to the island. Now, the other PT vote, sir. 
didn't mount a rescue mission because they assumed that everyone was dead. Yes, they did. They didn't have radar. So the ones that did have radar had gone back to the base earlier. They saw the explosion, thought that everyone was dead, and indeed they even had a... They were preparing a commemorative service back at the American base. So certain were they that, that Kennedy and his, his crew were, were all dead. So here's, here's JFK in hiding in enemy territory, clearly no food or water, and things are looking grim. They're looking very, very grim indeed. But fortunately, when the accident happened, the aftermath was seen by Lieutenant Reg Evans, bookkeeper turned coast watcher from Sydney, who was in a camp way high on Columbangara Island in the Western Solomons. He, with an American, Frank Nash, saw the aftermath, saw the, the fire on the water, as they said, and thought, what's that? And they discovered that it was PT-109 next morning. And what Reg Evans then did is told his um, Solomon Islander scouts that he, that he worked with, be on the lookout for any survivors. Not that Evans was confident, but you know, be on the, be on the lookout for survivors. There may be some American servicemen in trouble on nearby islands. Now, Brett, I know all too well about messages in bottles, but I've <laughs> never heard of a message carved into a coconut. Well, I didn't have any paper, Philip. So what happened is when finally the the islanders, and, you know, it, it took a bit of luck and an enormous amount of you know, courage and bravery from these Solomon Islander scouts, they saw Kennedy... Uh, and one of his crew members. And when they did, they actually paddled off because they thought they were Japanese or, in any case, enemy. And it was only when Kennedy got back to his crew that night on another island that he found the uh, Solomon Islander scouts uh, sitting around the fire with his crew smoking cigarettes because, fortunately, the, the scouts had stopped off at the other island met Kennedy's crew and were finally convinced that they were friendly, that they were Americans. And what happened when Kennedy got back was he thought, right, we have to tell the American base that you know, we're, we're alive. How do we do that? Uh, and and the, one of the scouts said, well, you can use a, use a coconut. And so Kennedy famously got out his pocket knife and whittled a message into uh, to the Americans at Rendover saying, you know, we're alive, please send help. And I understand the uh, the coconut sat on the desk in the Oval Office. Yes, it did, with all those other talismans on the road to power, Philip. You know, uh, it, it was there along with his naval ID card and other maritime memorabilia. And I think as President Kennedy once reflected, you know, uh, life's not fair and war's even less fair. Some men live, some die, and... There's no reason for it. He was just extraordinarily lucky to be uh, seen by the, the, the scouts and then rescued. He was, otherwise there wouldn't have never been a President Kennedy, nor indeed an Ambassador Kennedy. So we're very lucky. You know, I, it's hard to believe that the coconut survived. It is. And indeed, that survived, Philip, and also the, the message that from Reg Evans that was given to one of the other scouts to take to Kennedy, to bring Kennedy back to Reg Evans Island so that they could organise a rescue. That survived as well. A, a, 
a message handwritten by Reg Evans. I mean, it's extraordinary, and yet they were both <laughs> in Kennedy's office. Well, tell me about that poignant moment uh, when Reg meets Jack. He was late. John Kennedy was was late arriving, <laughs> and he he was increasingly concerned, Evans, that something had gone wrong. What the the Islander scouts did is put Kennedy in the canoe, but covered him in palm fronds because the Japanese were sending spotter planes, and if they saw a white bloke, they would have stopped, and you know there would have been trouble. So they, the scouts, wisely hit him under palm fronds. Late that afternoon, finally, Evans could see some ripples emerging across the, 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 the shimmering ocean. It was very calm. And he was worried because he, co- he couldn't see Kennedy. He couldn't see a, a, a white American. But he noticed the, the smile on Benjamin Kevu, one of the scouts. He said he was wreathed in smiles and thought, aha, maybe, maybe Kennedy's somewhere. And just as they got towards the beach, out jumped this very skinny, bedraggled, uh, unshaven and exhausted young American and said, um, God, am I glad to see you. And uh, Evans grabbed him by the hand and said, and I'm bloody glad to see you too, mate. <laughs> you write that this meeting between JFK and, uh, and Reg Evans is emblematic of the US-Australian relationship. Yes, uh, avatars, in effect, uh, for the sort of the founding of, of the friendship, uh, repeated hundreds and thousands of times uh, after after 1941. Philip, before the Second World War, and I'll be honest, somewhat to my surprise, Australia and the United States didn't really know each other very well. And it took uh, the Second World War, concern about the Japanese even slightly before Pearl Harbor, to throw Australia and America together. So it wasn't so much love at first sight. It was more a shotgun wedding, you know. <laughs> and uh, that's, But that's the truth. And in a sense, we were there together uh, to uh, repel Japan potentially from Australia and certainly, of course, to help the Americans retake uh, the Philippines. Now, none of this would have happened without the help of two very important local scouts. What was their part in this story, Brett? Well, they were absolutely critical because uh, without them, uh, Jack Kennedy and his crew never would have been never would have been seen or spotted. And so it was Aroni Kamana and Bayuku Gaza who were fir- who were Islander scouts, both young, both in their twenties, and they saw Kennedy uh, and one of his crewmen. And it's bad enough being a coast watcher if you're caught. Uh, you know, the end will be pretty uh, swift after uh, potentially being you know, tortured. But for them, we've all got to remember that just like in, in Europe with the partisans, it's not just their lives, the lives of the scouts, but the, it's the, the lives of their families or potentially their village could potentially be imperiled. So they were enormously brave. And without, without the help of the, with the scouts, and indeed the expertise and the goodwill of the scouts and indeed the local inhabitants, the Coast Watchers simply couldn't have done their job and they couldn't even have set up camp because that took about a dozen men to carry the radio, carry the petrol and the generator and the telescope and all the gear you need, you know, for for the base. And you had to have the goodwill of of the local population. And in Solomon Islands, uh, there was never one recorded case 
of betrayal of the Allies by any of the locals, which is extraordinary given given the attempts by the Japanese to get the upper hand. It's extraordinary. Tell me about Reg Evans. He was a man of uh, few words, and the people he worked with really, really liked him. They loved him. And the only reason why he said he got away with so much during the Second World War uh, in the Solomon Islands was because they remembered him from his time in the Solomons prior to the war. And Reg Evans was uh, a bloke who people warmed to, including the islanders. And in the end, of course, that saved him. Before drones and satellites, coast watches were crucial. Yes, they were uh, before drones. That's right. Um, what they did, they provided, you know, crucial intelligence about Japanese military movements, and they often pre-warned uh, the allies of incoming attacks. Attacks, and critically, a good example of that was after Guadalcanal was taken by the Marines. Very shortly thereafter, the Japanese decided to bomb it, but. Australian coast watchers situated uh, in Bougainville saw them coming and by radioing in, they gave the Allies, the Americans, about two hours notice of the arrival of Japanese bombers. And that's a lot. That's a lot. And it enabled the ships to be put away and the the planes to be up and the anti-aircraft fire to be ready. So by the time the Japanese bombers arrived, they were dealt with... um, expeditiously by the Americans. That in particular was absolutely critical. And it was Admiral Halsey, uh, the United States Admiral, who said that the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal saved the Pacific. There were only a few few hundred of them, Philip, but they were critical. How how did the story of the PT-109 become so, well, so huge? Well, really because of Jack Kennedy... Uh, because he became more and more and more famous. So he went to Congress in 1946, into the Senate in 1952, and then, of course, Democratic nominee for president in July of 1960. And as he became more and more famous, people kept thinking, who was the Coast Watcher that helped rescue him during the Second World War? Kennedy had misremembered Evans' name, and he was reported by... Hersey, who written the, who wrote the famous book about Hiroshima, that it was a Lieutenant Wincoat from, wait for it, the New Zealand Army. <laughs> and uh, it was only because they tried to track down Wincoat, couldn't find him, that they tried to track down who it really was. And the story comes out, and of course, uh, JFK's notorious father had 100,000 copies of of the book about the PT-109 printed and distributed to help his <laughs> son's uh, political ambitions. Uh, correct. So the story became very famous and then the, the identity, of course, of the rescuer became more and more critical, particularly as, as you know, Jack Kennedy moved towards, towards the White House. Jack Kennedy's bravery, I think, is really undoubted But by the end of the war, he was one of the most famous veterans uh, and his bravery was well known throughout the United States, Uh, as you say, uh, because it was republished in Reader's Digest and, you know, everyone knew Ambassador Kennedy's son, um, Jack Kennedy. He became quite 
quite famous. Good start for a political career. Did Reg uh, meet Jack? He did. He did. Uh, when finally, uh, well, he outed himself in the end uh, and everyone was slightly shocked. He met uh, President Kennedy on May the 1st of 1961 and he was there for about half an hour with, with the president. It was a great meeting. Reg writes about it and it was about 20 minutes alone they had and he paid uh, President Kennedy the ultimate compliment. Uh, he said, we're like two old coppers uh, meeting again. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Look, Brett, that's marvellous story, captivating, and uh, I urge the listener to have a read of uh, Brett Mason's new book, Saving Lieutenant or Lieutenant Kennedy, the heroic story of the Australian who helped rescue JFK and it's published by uh, New South. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.